Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> um, for those of you who are new and not been a part of our class before, maybe you just forgot. That's very easy to do. Um, we are studying Jesus in the Old Testament, and right now we're in the life of Abraham and Sarah, uh, and uh, we're, we're learning how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, the last time that we were together, um, we were talking about how Jesus expresses both God's justice and His mercy, and that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that's in the New Testament. All right, there's no difference, and you're going to hear different. You will hear different. You're going to hear people. You may, unfortunately, you may have people actually come to you and teach you that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods, or you may hear them teach you that the people in the Old Testament got saved in a different way than people in the New Testament, and that's just simply not true. God is the same God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. He's the same God. He does not change at all. We change, but He never changes. And so as we've studied learning about Jesus in the Old Testament, one of the main reasons that we do that is because we find out that the Bible is Christocentric. The Bible is Christocentric. What do I mean by that? What did we say in the past? Christ-centered. So everything that you read focuses on Christ or points us to Christ. Unfortunately, we as fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve have the tendency to make everything about us. When we read the Bible, we're trying to find us in there. We're trying to find our solution and, and our answers. And they're in there, but those answers come through Christ. And the Scriptures point us to Him. And so it's very important that when we open up our Bibles, whether we're in Genesis or 2 Thessalonians, that we're looking for Christ in those words because He's always there. And so I want to, um, if, if you have the handout that I just handed you, just some quick reminders. For some of you guys, I know we only do this class once a month, so you may have forgot. For some of you, this may be repetitious, and that's okay. Repetition is actually not a bad thing. Um, I find that myself, I have a hard head, and sometimes I have to hear something about 15 or 18 times before I'll remember it. So for those of you who have heard these 15 or 18 times, please forgive me, but I do want to show you that Jesus' method of teaching the Bible, Jesus' method of teaching the Bible, was to show them that the Old Testament was about Him. Now remember, when Jesus was walking the earth with His apostles, there was no such thing as the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. He couldn't turn to those books because it was going to be at least 30 years before any of those books started to even begin to be written. So anytime that you're reading your New Testament, if you go to the book of Acts and you see where Paul is preaching the gospel to people and it said that he is reasoning with them through the Scriptures, you need to understand that what that means is Paul is going to the Old Testament and teaching them the gospel through the Old Testament. It's super important to see that. John 3.16 is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. But it was being proclaimed long before John ever wrote, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Those words were being imprinted among people's hearts and minds long before that ever happened. And so if you look at Luke chapter 24, Jesus was speaking to some people on the road to Emmaus. He said, Oh, you foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself 
in all of the Scriptures. So you see how Jesus taught people? He would open up Moses and the prophets and He would show them that all of Moses and the prophets was about Him. In that same chapter of Luke chapter 24, Jesus is now talking with His disciples in the upper room. Guys that had been with Him for three years. How many of y'all have been here three years? I've been here three years. No, none. All right, but these guys had been walking with Jesus and seeing His miracles and hearing His teaching in a personal one-on-one relationship with Him like nobody has ever had for three years. And yet at the end of that three years, after His resurrection, He says this to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, all right, when that says me, it's talking about Jesus, not you, me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So, how does God always work? He uses the word of God. And the Spirit of God to open our minds and our hearts so that we can understand and know Him. Not so that we can know and understand ourselves, but so that we can know and understand Him. We were created in His image. And if we can can grasp and know and have a relationship with the One who created us, then knowing the creation is not going to be half as hard as it should be, right? You see what I'm saying? When we know the Creator... Through His Word and through His truth, He opens our minds to understand all of the Scriptures. And that's the way that Jesus has always taught. So the Bible is Christocentric. Now, I've used the example before to you in the past. I want to give you another quick example tonight. But I've used the example with you before that remember King David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Right? David wrote that. David, as a young teenage boy, was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to be a shepherd. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, he penned a poem. He penned a psalm, a song about how a shepherd takes care of his sheep. And shepherds and sheep was something that was very common in the Old Testament. Could David have turned to the book of Moses and read about how Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock in Midian? Could David have done that? Of course he could. It was actually required that every king handwrite their own copy of the Old Scriptures and know them frontwards and backwards. So would David have known what it was like to be a shepherd? Yes. And was the theme of shepherds all through the Old Testament? Was Jacob a shepherd? Yes. Was Abraham a shepherd? Yes. What about Abel? Yes. So all the way through the Old Testament, there's this theme of shepherds taking care of sheep. Then David says, The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant keeper, promise keeping, creator of the earth, is my shepherd. I will not want because he gives me everything I need. And he writes this song, and for 900 or 800 years, the children of Israel sung that song every time that they would go to praise and worship her. Just like we just had our praise and worship and we sung uh, Amazing Grace and, and Holiness and, and all these songs. Well, in the, in the synagogue, when the Jews would gather together, what would they do? They would sing the psalms. And so one of the songs that they had been singing for over 800 years, 700 years, was The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. They would have sung that. Well, Jesus... 700 years later, the great-great-great-great-grandson of David stands in front of them and says, I am the Good Shepherd. You've been singing about me for the last 750 years. You see, it's all about Him. So I want to show you one more example of that. Look, if you will, in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Psalm 40. 
verse 7 and 8. And this is what it says. <clears throat> Again, this is a song that they would sing in the synagogue. Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. So this psalmist is writing and saying, In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Alright, now take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Hebrews really quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And the apostle or whoever you want to decide wrote this. I personally think Paul wrote it, but that's just my persuasion. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17, it says this. We may go back a couple of verses before that just to get some context. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, let's start in verse 14. <clears throat> Let me see if I make sure I got the right verse there. Yeah, by one offering he is perfected for all times those who come to him, right? What does it say? Are sanctified. Hebrews 10 and verse 17. Hebrews 10 and verse 14. For by one offering he is perfected for all times those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. Uh, So who is that talking about? Jesus and His one offering, by His one offering, He has set apart a people for Himself. Right? And He says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their hearts and upon their minds, and I will write it. And I missed the the text. Go back up to um, 7. It's not 17, it's 7. Right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. It says... Uh, in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year by year, for it is impossible for the bulls of, uh, blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Alright? And so the the book of Hebrews, what the writer is doing is he's comparing the sacrifices of the Old Testament with the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and through that one sacrifice he has sanctified forever a people for himself. How many sacrifices were made in the Old Testament? Innumerable. And not only that, every time you made a sacrifice... After you went home and hung out with your family for a couple days, you had to come back and make more sacrifices. Why? Because you had sinned more and you needed to get those sins covered too. So your sacrifice was never good enough to save you. It was never good enough to forgive you of your sins. But what the writer of Hebrews here is doing, he's saying that was the old way. We brought the blood of bulls and goats, but they never made you perfect. But now, through the one offering... The offering of Jesus, He has sanctified forever a people for Himself. And so if you look at that passage in verse 3, or verse 5, 6, and 7, the writer of Hebrews is quoting what? 
Psalm 40. He's gone back to the Psalms and he's using the Psalms. And what is he trying to show them? That Psalm all along has been about Jesus. That Psalm talked about sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What is he talking about there? The Word became flesh and walked among us. Alright? So you see how that works? We take those Old Testament passages and through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit, through an understanding that Jesus has now fulfilled all of those Old Testament sacrifices and, and the priesthood and the temple and all of that, all of that all simply points people to what they what really saves them, which is Jesus. That makes sense? Okay. So let me I want to share with you a quote from a guy named Matthew Henry. He's an old commentator. He says the apostle having shown that the tabernacle and the ordinances of the covenant of Sinai were only emblems and types of the gospel, concludes that the sacrifices the high priest offered continually could not make the worshiper perfect with respect to pardon and the purifying of their conscience. But when God manifested in the flesh became the sacrifice and his death upon the accursed tree, the ransom, then the sufferer being of infinite worth, his free will suffering, sufferings were of infinite value. The atoning sacrifice must be one capable of consenting and must be of his own will placed himself in the sinner's stead. Christ did this. The fountain of all that Christ has done for his people is the sovereign will and grace of God. The righteousness brought in and the sacrifice once offered by Christ are of eternal power and his salvation shall never be done away. They are of power to make all the comers thereunto perfect. They derive from the atoning blood strength and motives for obedience and inward comfort. So, Remember in the Old Testament how Abraham carried the sacrifice up <clears throat> to the mountain with his son? Yeah. Right? Well, his son was the sacrifice, wasn't he? Yeah. Right. Now you remember he tied his son down on that altar and took the knife and was fixing to stab his son. You remember that? Yeah. Right. And not only that, but when God says, Stop Abraham, now I know you believe me, and he provided him what in the bushes? Right. A lamb. What did they have to do with the lamb? They had to tie it down. Why? Because people do not want to willingly die. Like if you lay somebody on an altar and hold a knife up, they are going to run. They had to strap the sacrifice down to the altar. Now with Jesus, they bound His hands. But do you know they didn't need to bind His hand? He wasn't going to run from what He had come to do, was He? He had come to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Testament. And all of that stuff in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And once we grasp that, and once we realize that, then the whole Bible becomes a beautiful story. And it's all our promise. It's not a Jewish and a Gentile promise. It's a promise to all the sons of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called sons of God. Right? And all of these are our promises now. And when we look at those, the Old Testament now, it should come to life when we begin to see our provider of life in it. When we see Jesus in it, it should start coming to life. And so that's what we've been doing in this class. So today, <clears throat> we're going to look at um, 
a little more at God's mercy and justice, and then we're going to look at a passage in Genesis. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank You for this day. We thank You for the love that sent Your Son down to save broken men and women like us. We thank You for what He... We thank You, Jesus, for what You did on that cross for us. We thank You, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds to that truth. And we pray now that You will help us to better grasp those truths. Help us to take those truths, to receive them, to believe them. Help us to apply them in our lives and give us the willingness and the desire to share those truths with others as we live for You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, last time we were together, we talked about God's justice and we talked about God's mercy. I want you to look with me really quickly over to Luke chapter 4. I want to remind you of something there that we've talked about in the past. Just as remember the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 4, I want you to notice where Jesus, what Jesus does. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit... And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read. So what was one of Jesus' customs that he would do? He would go to his local synagogue and he would openly read the Scriptures. What Scriptures is he reading? Genesis to Malachi, all right? And it says that his custom was to go to the synagogue and read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. Alright, so Jesus gets up to read. They hand Him the scroll. And that day's reading just happened to be in Isaiah. Now it wouldn't have been, we're going to find out that it's in Isaiah 61, but for them it wouldn't have been in Isaiah 61 because it was going to be the 1300s before people ever put numbers to the Scripture. But this day's reading was in the book of Isaiah. And when Jesus opened it up, He's standing in front of a group of His Jewish counterparts. And what did He say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent so to preach to the poor, gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the people enslaved, to release to the captives, recover sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed, and proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. Now, did Jesus do this in His ministry? He did all of those things, didn't He? Set captives free, healed the blind. He did all of these things. So, is this an example of God's mercy or God's wrath? His mercy. So here's Jesus standing in front of a group of people. He opens up the book of Isaiah and reads in Isaiah where somebody has the Spirit of the Lord upon them. And what does God do when He puts His Spirit upon them? They preach the gospel to the poor. They proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight of the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. So what has Jesus done? God so loved the world, He gave us His only begotten Son. He came down here. He lived a life that we could not live. He lived a life 
that the, he is the only son of Adam that has ever lived a life worthy of going to heaven. Only one person has ever lived a life good enough to go to heaven. So he lived the life that we could not live so that we could have a life we could not earn. Not only did he live a life that we couldn't live, but he died a death that we deserve. So as he hung on the cross, God's mercy was being expressed because the wrath that belonged on you and me was poured on his own son. God's wrath and his mercy because Jesus cried out and said what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See? And so the God of wrath and the God of mercy are the same God. And Jesus is that God in the flesh. He was the Word. The Word became flesh and walked among us. And so Jesus is the God of mercy and Jesus is the God of justice. But now I want to show you something. I want to show you in Isaiah chapter 61. Turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 61, that is where Jesus would have been quoted. So we can jump in our sanctified imagination time machines and go back and sit down in the synagogue where Jesus is reading to his uh, uh, neighbors, reading from the book of 60, uh, Isaiah, and look at chapter 61. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bring, bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Alright? Can somebody tell me what line Jesus didn't read? Out of that quote. Well, did he say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me? Yeah. Did he say he, the Lord has anointed me? Yeah. To bring good news to the afflicted? Did he say that? Yeah. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted? Yeah. To proclaim liberty to the captives? To give freedom to the prisoners? To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord? He said all of those things, didn't he? And a day of vengeance of our God. He didn't say that, did he? Now, what is the day of vengeance of our God? It's going to be the rapture. That's wrath, isn't it? That's the day of the Lord. That's the day. The last day, guys, no matter what your eschatology is, I don't care if you're pre-mill or on-mill or post-mill, all of those imply a judgment day. That's right. And everyone will stand before their judge, their God, and answer for every thought, feeling, and action that they ever had as a human being. <coughs> Thankfully, our sins are under the blood of Christ. But we still have to account for the lives that we live, do we not? Remember how Paul talks about how uh, that the hay, wood, hay, and stubble and things of silver and gold and that when the fires come that the things of wood, hay, and stubble are going to be burned up? Right? There's going to be a lot of things that you thought you did helping a little old lady across the street uh, something you did here on earth, you think, boy, I look how good a boy I am, and God's going to look at them and judge them, and they're going to be burnt up with the fire because they were, uh, they were because you were looking for self glory or you were looking for a paycheck or something. You see, God knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart, and we're going to be judged based on that. But what's so funny is Jesus here. He is standing in the synagogue. He reads all of that passage, but he stops short of saying. A day of vengeance of our God. Why? 
Well, how many times does Jesus come into the earth? He came born of a virgin. And He came to show us His mercy. But He will return again. And then He will show us His wrath. Now, why did He stop short? Because at His first advent, He had come to be the living sacrifice. At the first advent, He come to live the life we couldn't. At the first advent, He come to show us His mercy and His compassion. But when He rips the skies open the next time, He's going to show us that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And nothing but the righteous will stand before Him. No one but the righteous will be before Him. And that's kind of what we want to look at today. Okay? So now we go to our Old Testament passage. Uh, every, well, wait, before we do that, let me share, let me just share with you what I mean by that. Um, really quick, go, flip, you're in Isaiah, flip back to Acts. Let's go back to Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 says this. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So who is Peter preaching about? Jesus. And what is he preaching to the people? He came to be your Savior, your Messiah, and He will come again to be your judge. Alright? 2 Corinthians 5.10. That was Peter. Let's see what Paul has to say about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are also manifest God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. So he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Right? Now, there are some people that believe that the, the church is going to get raptured away and that they don't have to be standing at the judgment. All right, that, that, This must be talking about the tribulation things or something because it can't be talking about me. But that's not what Paul's saying right here. What did Paul say? We must all appear before the judgment seat. Who is all? Any of y'all from here in the south know y'all. I mean you all. And me. Everybody. That's right. We will all stand before. And who will we stand? Who will be our judge? Jesus. Now, there's some people that tell you, wait, wait, now Jesus came. He said that I come not to judge no one. Remember, he said that in the book of John. He said, I've come not to judge no one. What did he mean by that? Okay, well, he said that too, right? What's the point? The point is that his first advent, he wasn't here to judge. He was safe. But that does not negate the fact that he's coming back to judge. And who will he judge according to Paul? We all will stand before the judgment judgment seat. All of us. So I know there's people who teach you there's a bema seat judgment and a great white throne judgment. 
There's one judgment, guys. Every son of Adam and daughter of Eve will stand before their Creator one day and answer for what they've done. So what did Paul say? Knowing the fear of the Lord, right? the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, the beginning with we persuade men. What did Jesus preach when He came? What was one of the first things in the book of Mark He said Jesus can't preach? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Turn away from sin and self and turn to God. Turn to Him as Savior or you will turn to Him as Judge. So, uh, one more, a couple more quick ones. Uh, 2 Timothy, just a couple more pages over to the right. 2 Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit... Let's see... I'm make sure I'm going to write one. That's First Timothy. That ain't going to help me. Second Timothy four one. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the Judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom to preach the word. He's given Paul. He's given uh, Timothy his marching orders. And he said, I'm charging you in front of God, in front of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Alright, so who is the judge? Who's going to judge us on the last day? Jesus. It's very important for us to remember, He's the same God. He's the God of wrath. He's the God of mercy. He's the God of grace. He's the God of justice. One God. And He does not change... In the book of Hebrews, it says there is no shadow of turning in Him. What does that mean? He doesn't alter His ways for anyone. And when we stand before Him, He's going to show us that. Thankfully, He loved us enough that He sent His Son to come and die on a cross so that we could be forgiven for all the time that we've rebelled against Him and for just being the sinners that we are. So, let's go now over to... uh, Look at our Jesus in the Old Testament passage for tonight. We've got just a few minutes left. Um, Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 to 33. Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 to 33. Last time we were together, we finished up a passage where God is warning, going to warn Abraham that he's fixed to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where we pick up tonight. So Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 to 33. I'll read the text for you, and then we're going to go back through and make some notes on each one of the passages. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he spoke about to him. The Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and I will see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me and if not I will know. The men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose that there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and spare the place, not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all of the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose that the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if there are forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again, Suppose forty are found. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it for thirty. And he said, Now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose that ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Alright? So, I just want to say a couple of quick things about that barter, that that bargaining that Abraham was doing uh, with the Lord. Why is he doing that? Why is he pleading? Why is he even concerned about the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why is he concerned about this place? Yeah, his nephew's there. Uh, He's concerned about his nephew. And he said, Oh God, if there's just so many people, so many righteous people, will you save the city? And I want you to notice what he asked God. He said, would you do such a thing? Could you do something like that? Look, look, what it, look the way he put it. He says, let me find the, the proper statement. Verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly. What does he say? He's saying, God, if there's some righteous people in that city and you go down there and destroy it, then you're not being righteous. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, if God is so good, why does He send people to hell? Y'all heard people say that before? Right? Well, that's a legit question, I guess. Right? Why does He send people to hell? We judge ourselves. It's our will. No, no. When He sends people to hell, He judges them. And He, he don't send people's sins to hell. He sends people to hell. That's very important for us to see, too. They go there to pay for their sins, but the people are the ones paying for their sins. But if He's so good, why does He send people to hell? What's the answer? Because He's just. Yeah. If, he, if, if they sin, the wages of sin is death. death, and we deserve death. And if He lets somebody slide, what is He doing? He's, he's being an unjust judge. Right? What would you say about our court system today in our, our in the United States? Do you think that judges ever get paid off? Oh, yeah. 
Do you think that? Do you? Right? For sure. I, I remember one time at uh, I probably probably shouldn't go into this, but I, I remember one time I used to work at a, a place that wasn't a very nice place to work at, and we a girl uh, acted out and she got caught with a bunch of cocaine in her pocket. So the police came and they arrested her and they took her off and I had to go to court and testify that this girl was acting out and that she did have cocaine in her purse. And we got to court, went to the courtroom, sat down. I didn't see the girl anywhere around. The judge called for the police officer who had made the arrest to come up and stand before me. And they said, where's the girl? And they said, um, oh, no, the girl was there. The police officer who made the arrest was not there. And the judge said, well, we can't do nothing until the arresting officer is here, so I'll hold this over the next week in court. So I came back the next week, sat down in court, and sure enough, no police officer again. So what did the judge do? Yeah. He dropped the case. Well, come to find out, this girl was a probation officer from a county, a couple of counties away from here. And her daddy was a judge, a county judge. Well, what do you think happened? Yeah, sure. And does that happen today? Now, God, now listen, God, not every judge is crooked, right? But we as human being people, we let people slide. How many of you have had parents that, that enabled you and bailed you out of stuff that you had no business getting bailed out of, right? Right? How many of us say, I don't have kids, but I do know my parents made the mistakes of covering for me with a lot of bad things that I did in my life. Oh, he's just being a boy. He's just, you know, God. and we do that. We make excuses for people. And God is not a God that accepts or makes excuses for anybody. So when somebody asks you, if God is so good, why does he send somebody to hell? The better question to ask them, if God is so just, why does anybody get to go to heaven? That's the right question to ask. Because who deserves to be in heaven? Not one person in the same, except Jesus. Jesus is the only man... He is the God-man and the man-God. Jesus is the only man standing in heaven today that deserves to be there. None of us deserve heaven. And that's where His grace comes in. But Abraham is kind of pleading for his nephew. Isn't he? And what did he say? God said, if there's five people down, or ten people down there that are, are worthy or that are righteous, I'll spare the city. Well, what happened to the city? It got destroyed. Why? Because there wasn't ten people there that were righteous. God did exactly what He said He was going to do. Right? And did you know that the Bible says how many righteous people are there? There are none righteous, no, not one. All right. So when you get on your high horse and start looking down, you'll know that some of the other whacked up people in this room remember that there's somebody looking down at you too. Right? That's right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And but for the grace of God, there goes I. So, in verse 7, I want to look at a couple quick passages before we run out of time. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> uh, Genesis 18, verse 17, it says this. It says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? God shows His favor towards His chosen people. Every one of you in this room, I am going to hope and pray that every one of you that are in this room today are here because you are fleeing from the justice and the wrath of God. 
that you realize your sinful state before a holy, holy, holy God and have turned away from sin and self and turned away from His wrath to turn to His blood, His forgiveness, to turn to His mercy. I pray that is why every one of you are in this room. Well, what that means is He showed you His favor by warning you of what is coming. He showed you His mercy by warning you. God shows mercy to those He favors. Alright? In verse 18. In verse 18 it says this. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and since in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So is there a plan for Abraham's life already? Yes. Does God know every bit of it? Yes. Does Abraham know every bit of it? Well, pretty much because God told him he was going to make a great nation out of him and he was going to bless him, right? But even in that, we see Jesus. Well, what do I mean by that? Look at Genesis 12.3. Genesis 12.3 says this. I will bless the one who blesses you and curse the one who curses you. I will curse them. And in your families... Of the all in in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember, that was a promise that God made them. He said, "In you, all of the world is going to be blessed." And then now he's reminding the angel as he's having this conversation: "Should we keep this back for Abraham, since he is going to be the one that through all through him all of the world will be blessed?" Well, let's look at another passage. Look at Genesis twenty-two eighteen. Genesis 22:18. This is during the offering of Isaac. This is when he's taking his only promised son to the top of the mountain and getting ready to sacrifice him. What does it say in 22:18? In your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So who's his seed? Well, in the very present tense, right then is who? Isaac. Right? But that's not what it's talking about because let's look now at Acts chapter 3 and 25. Now we're going to the New Testament. You see what I'm doing? I'm taking these Old Testament reminders of promises to Abraham that through his seed all the world will be blessed. And now let's go and see how the Old Testament or the New Testament apostles preach this message. Look in Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. This is Peter preaching. And what did he say? It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter is a Jew. He's speaking to a group of Jews who are all Abraham's great-great-grandkids. Right? And one might think, well, is the seed Isaac? Is the seed all of these Jews that he's preaching to right here? Well, let's look and see what Paul says about it. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. The Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All of the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
Now go down to verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to your seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is who? Christ. That one offspring of Abraham, Jesus, is the seed. And through that seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now remember, what was Peter, who was Peter preaching to in Acts? A group of who? Jews. Jews. But he said what? All the nations will be blessed through you. And now Paul is saying right here in Galatians that the, to the Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus in His flesh came and died on the cross to say one race. All the sons of Adam who He died to say. It's not about... Remember, and not only that, when Abraham was given the promise, remember, He said, in, you all the, in your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. Remember this. Abraham wasn't Jewish yet. It, the promise was given to him before he was circumcised. So it's never been just about Jew, and it's never been just about Gentile. It's been about the sons of God, his children. One of the best theologically sound songs we ever sung as kids red and yellow, black and white, the air pressure inside. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Because if you go to Revelation, look at Revelation, we'll finish with this. And of course, we never get done. But Revelation 5 9, we'll look at that and finish up with that tonight. Look at it in Revelation 5 9. This is around the throne. It says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So worthy are you to take and break the seal because you were slain. Who is he talking to? Who are they singing to? Jesus. You purchased for God with your blood all of the world. Is that what it says? No. It says you purchased with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, nation and people right you purchased with your blood men from every tribe tongue people and nation it does not say you purchased with your blood every tribe tongue and nation when Jesus died on the cross he had a specific target in mind when he died it was his sheep Jesus said I am the good shepherd I lay my life down for my sheep. When you take communion and they hand the cup around, they say, this is the cup of my blood, my blood that was poured out for the many. Who are the many? All of those that He died to save. If you're in this room today, what that means is that Jesus, when He was hanging on the cross, was specifically dying to redeem you, to pay for your sins. And now that He's died for you, He commands you to go live for Him. 
So um, I'll be back Friday. We'll finish up that. What we're going to try to do next on this Friday, since we've already done all the summary work again, when we get here Friday, we won't have to do any summary work. What we'll do is we'll get right into Genesis, and we're going to do Genesis 18, 19. We're going to we're going to see Sodom destroyed come unless the Lord returns between now and Friday. I'm going to do everything within my power to get Sodom wiped off of the face of the earth as we read in, in Genesis 19. So I want to thank you all for your time tonight. Let's close with a quick prayer, okay? Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you that you are a merciful God who loves us because there is not a one of us in this room that are righteous, no, not one of us. And yet you loved us enough to come down and to live the life we could not live and die the death that we deserve so that we could have a life we could not earn so that we could have forgiveness that we don't deserve. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your shed blood. We ask for your forgiveness for all of those times that we take advantage of your love and your mercy and your grace. Help us to walk in the fear and admonition of who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.